This might have been already said, but we want to say we're glad that we have so many present this morning, especially our guests and visitors. And after the services, we're going to have a meal and we're sure we're sure we have enough food to support everybody, make sure everybody gets something to eat. And if we don't, I'll split a piece of chicken with you if you promise to stay. We're glad that you're here and we're looking forward to our time together and for our afternoon service as well. Before Hobby Lobby or Michaels or Home Goods or any other company had home decor with house rules plastered on the signs, the ancient world had house codes and house rules of their own. You read in books like Plato's Famous Republic, and he talks about house rules and how individuals that live together are to interact one with another. And then, of course, after him, there's Aristotle, and he talks about in a home how there are certain responsibilities for the women and certain responsibilities for the men. And then the philosopher Plutarch came after him, and he wrote about how men and women are to conduct themselves in the home, and the Jewish society had their own. Men like Ben Sirah and Philo talked about how Jewish people who based their lives on the law of Moses were to live together in their families in response to the law, will, and word of God. None of this is to suggest at all that we're supposed to go back to yesteryear in order to get the house rules or the house codes for how we're to conduct ourselves today. It's just simply to say that the idea that individuals in homes live by house rules isn't anything new, anything different. In fact, every home has them. And whether they're written down, stated or just simply implied, the way that we conduct ourselves in our homes is a reflection of those house rules applied, enforced or altogether ignored. You know, the New Testament talks about the church using various metaphors. One of Paul's favorites is that the church of God is God's house. Ephesians 2 and verse 20, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, Paul says the church of God is the house of God and it is what supports and upholds the pillar and the ground of the truth. You turn your Bible to 1 Timothy and we would be well to say that the entire six chapters is really a household manual for how Christians are to live and to conduct themselves, but especially That section that Brady just read for us a moment ago from 1 Timothy chapter 5, in that section, Paul lays down how Christians are to behave and live and ultimately how we're to conduct ourselves. The reality for us is in 1 Timothy 5, what we have are these house rules that God gives us 25 verses of how we're to live and how we're to respond to one another in the family. Lest we get in our minds that 1 Timothy is simply a letter from one preacher to another with no practical application for us, Paul lets us know that it is. He talks about how we're to live in the family of God together, how we're to treat widows and those that might find themselves in need, how we're to respond to our elders and how we're to respond to those that are engaged in public sin, whether elders or members of the church in general. Paul gives us God's house rules. Now, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to First Timothy, chapter five. This chapter is not challenging, really. It's one of those chapters that when you read it, you know immediately and exactly what it says, what it means and how we should apply it. The challenge for us, of course, is on the days when we run into things from First Timothy, chapter five, that makes us uncomfortable and that challenges us. And then we all might be guilty of trying to make exceptions to the rule. But we've just got to remember that it's God's house and these are God's house rules. I count five rules that Paul gives us in First Timothy five for how we as the church, the people of God, are to conduct ourselves. And as we walk through the chapter, I want us to observe these rules and then examine our hearts and our lives and do our best individually and collectively to bring ourselves into conformity with what we find. House rule number one is found in First Timothy, chapter five, verses one and two. 
Paul says to the young man, Timothy, I want you to make sure that you do not rebuke an elder, but encourage him as you would a father. The younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters with all purity. The first house rule that Paul gives is that there need to be strong relationships within in the local church. There need to be strong relationships that exist between the members. Notice what he leads off with saying in verse one, Paul, Paul tells Timothy, do not rebuke an elder elder in first Timothy five and verse one is not the man that occupies the position of leadership that he talks about in chapter three. This is just simply an older man in the congregation. This was in ancient Israel's Old Testament, places like Leviticus 19 and verse 32. They were told to stand up before the gray head and to look the age man in the face and to fear the Lord, their God. Proverbs 23 and verse 22 stress respect for those that are older. And that's exactly what Paul says here. But he broadens that and he says older women are to be treated like mothers and those that are Timothy's contemporaries are to be treated like his spiritual siblings. What God wants in his house, the house rules are that those that are members of the house, members of the family have strong relationships one toward another. What did Jesus tell the apostles in Matthew 23 and verse eight? You all are brethren one with another. You're to be close. You know, in the first century, when somebody became a Christian, there was no guarantee that their family was going to approve of their decision to become a Christian or continue to put up with them. The church became their family. And so Paul would say in passages like Romans 12 and verse five, we are members one of another. We're to coexist and do life together as the people of God. The first house rule that Paul gives is about you and me living our lives together and entering into the family and expressing love one toward another exactly like Jesus taught us. You remember John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. When Timothy gets to chapter five of this letter, he's supposed to look out to this congregation to whom he's preaching to and working with and appreciate that he's looking on the face of his spiritual siblings. Jamal Winton was in in 2017, he was about 16 years old when he received what he described as an anonymous text from somebody inviting him to Thanksgiving dinner. The person signed the text, I can't wait to see you, Grandma. And he said, when did my grandma learn how to text? And so he responds and said, you got the wrong person. I'm not your grandson. This person said, yes, yes, you are. You are my grandson. And I expect to see you at Thanksgiving dinner. Jamal said, well, would you send a picture just so that we can confirm that we're in the same family? Because I don't believe my grandmother knows how to text. Wanda Dench sent him the picture back and he realized we are not in the same family. <laughs> but he did send a response back and he meant it jokingly. Can I still get that plate, though? And Wanda responds, yes, of course, because that's exactly what grandmothers do. It started in 2017 and all the way through up until this year, they've been meeting together to have Thanksgiving dinner together. It was just an accident. They were put together. They didn't intend to, but they became family. What Paul's telling you and me as the people of God and the family of God is what we've got in our family and the table we surround is not by accident. Jesus put us here on purpose. He says, I want you to be one. John 17, 20 and 21, that all men might believe that God has sent me into the world. And that's exactly what God expects of us. We're to have strong relationships within. We're in violation of this house rule if we don't maintain this unity. We're in violation of this house rule. If when we come into the assembly, we only talk to the siblings that are our favorites. James two and verse one. James says, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. 
We're in violation of this house rule about these strong relationships. If we zoom in and out of the assembly so quickly that we don't even have time to really get to know anybody beyond the surface. How can brotherly love continue? Hebrews 13 and verse one. If it never really gets started. We're in violation of this house rule to have these strong relationships together. If we accuse everybody of being in a clique all the time, but we never try to click with anybody else. Paul had never met the Christians in Rome in Romans 1, 11 through 13. And yet Paul says, I can't wait to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift. Paul says, I'm going to put myself out there so that I might get to know you, because after all, you and I were family members. This is our responsibility to have these deep and rich relationships. God wants these relationships to be the closest to us in all the world. In Philemon 12, he says about Onesimus, he's my very heart. In Philippians 2 and verse 20, he says about young Timothy, I have nobody else on earth like him. You think about all of the things that can try to come between Christians and separate us. Petty beefs that cause us to try to avoid one another. And John saying in 3 John 14, I can't wait to see you face to face so that we can interact. And Paul says it's God's house. It's God's rules. And this is ultimately what God wants. He wants strong and rich relationships. The local assembly is not a once a week religious gathering. So far as God's concerned, it's a weekly family reunion. We are not just familiar friends. We're forever family. If we're in Christ, we'll know one another for the rest of our eternal lives. And that makes a difference with how we ultimately interact. The first congregation Brittany and I attended when we obeyed the gospel in this congregation, it was small, maybe about 50, 60 members. Everybody in the congregation called one another brother, so and so, sister, so and so, insert last name. I didn't think anybody there had a first name. It was always Brother Smith, Sister Williams, and that's just the way you refer to everybody. And you could imagine how that might be problematic. You never know anybody's first name. They're just brother or sister. But you also might appreciate how that could be eminently practical when you're trying to build these strong relationships. What if every one of us internally, silently to ourselves before we ever thought about anybody in this local congregation, we always silently in our minds inserted brother or sister so-and-so before we said their name. When somebody's grieving, it's not just John grieving, but it's brother John. And then his tears become mine. Romans 12 and verse 15. What if before I said anything about somebody else in this congregation to somebody else, I said, I've got to remember, that's not just that's not just Susie. That's sister Susie. That's my spiritual sibling. What if before I canceled anybody in the local church because they frustrated me or did something I didn't like that I remembered? They're not my foes. They're my family, my spiritual and eternal kin. It's God's house rules. It's his family. And he says, I want you to have these strong and rich relationships one toward another. Romans 12 and verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. And that's the way God set it up. Here's number two from First Timothy, chapter five. Not just strong relationships within, but Paul says, I want you to support the needy. That's First Timothy five and verse three. Honor widows who are truly widows. In the first century culture, widows were in a rather vulnerable position. Most times they weren't left their husband's will or estate and then they'd be in great financial peril. And even if they were, there were individuals that would like to pounce on them and exploit them financially. Jesus described the Pharisees as those who devoured widows houses. Mark chapter 12 and verse 40. And so you can see the peril or the situation they would find themselves in. And notice what Paul tells Timothy in first Timothy, chapter five and verse three. Honor widows who are truly widows. That is, make sure that you support those that are in the greatest need among your number. It's what God has said to do. 
In Psalm 68 and verse five, he calls himself a God who is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows in his holy habitation. You just start making your way through the Bible and keep your eyes open for the vulnerable population and what God says about our responsibility to them and what happens if we don't do it. Israel was told you make sure that you look out for the widows and provide for them. Deuteronomy 14, 29. There was a blessing attached to Israel following through on this command. Isaiah 1 and verse 17, Jeremiah 7, 6 and 7. There was the wrath of God poured down and abiding on those that refused to do this. In Malachi 3 and verse 5, Jesus did miracles for all sorts of people, but especially for the widows. He saw the widow's son that had perished in Nain in Luke 7, 11 through 17. And he comes up and touches the coffin and says to the young man, arise and walk. In the early church, there was this problem with the bread in Acts chapter six. And you remember what they do. They select seven men so that they can keep this benevolent activity going and support the needy among them. Paul is saying one of God's house rules is we have a responsibility to support the needy. Turn your Bible to James chapter one. In James chapter one, as James is talking about our response to hardship and trial and then moves in to talk about how we respond to the word of God. Notice the last verse in James chapter one and verse 27 and how important this reality, this theme is to our entire Christian walk. James 127, James says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the father is this to visit. And that word means more than just go by and see how they're doing. This word for visit means to look in and see how I can relieve a need to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We might put a great deal of emphasis on keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. But one of the ways we do that, according to this passage and a host of others, is that we see to the needs of those and especially those that are widows and especially those that don't have anybody else. Paul just wants Timothy to know and the rest of the local church that a, the part of these strong relationships is making sure that we support the needy. A lot of first Timothy is about false doctrine. It's about making sure false teachers don't make inroads in the church and cause hardship for us. But one of the things that can happen as we're constantly trying to ward off false teachers and stand for the truth, our hearts can become hardened to those that are in our midst. And Paul says, don't let that happen. Keep up your benevolent spirit. And I know first Timothy five is primarily dealing with widows who are in the church, who are Christians. But let's not miss this point. In Christianity, benevolence is always Christians, especially. But it's never Christians only. It's always Christians, especially meaning that if you have to choose between a Christian and a non-Christian, God says help the family of God first. But it's never help the family of God only. Turn your Bible to Galatians chapter six. Galatians chapter six. And notice what Paul says in verse 10 about our supporting other individuals that are in need. Galatians six and verse 10. As you therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those that are of the household of faith. There it is. Paul saying if you have to choose, especially of the household of faith, but you support and you help everybody because that's exactly what Christians do. In first Timothy five, Paul says this benevolence isn't for every widow everywhere. He gives some criteria. If you make your way down through about verse seven, he says, make sure that they don't have family that can't do this for them first. First Timothy five and verse four. The first line of defense would be their family. Make sure it's a person who is all alone and is destitute with no other individuals to help them. First Timothy chapter five and verse five. Make sure that the widow that would be enrolled in this type of benevolent service, first Timothy five, nine and ten. Paul says she has to be 60 years old and older. Make sure that these are the individuals that receive the aid first. But keep your eyes up and make sure that you support the needy. This is God's house rule for his people. Make sure you have strong relationships within and then look out among you and see who needs help and see that you do it. 
You know, we read Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And maybe in our minds, we think to ourselves, I would love to be a hero and help a stranger on the side of the street. But passages like this remind us that maybe what God wants us to do most and first is to help a sibling at the end of a pew. Before we go out and do a heroic thing for a stranger, Paul's saying there are opportunities ever out in front of you, right before you. And I'm thankful, as it's already been prayed this morning, that I'm looking on the face of some of the most benevolent people in the world. The church here at Lehman has been known for rising to the occasion and supporting and helping other people. But Paul is just reminding us in 1 Timothy 5, never let this work be cast aside. In 2013... John Sweeney posted on what he then called suspended coffees. He started a Facebook page and in about eight hours he had 20,000 likes on the page. He called it suspended coffee. And this goes back to something that started in Naples, Italy, early in the 20th century. And what John suggested was when you go into a place to buy a coffee, make sure that you buy one for somebody else. Back in the 20th century, people in Italy started doing this and they called it suspended coffee. You buy coffee for yourself and for somebody else, especially somebody else that can't afford their own. And today we use all types of terminology to describe this process. We might talk about paying it forward and doing we've smuggled all of these virtues in from Christianity. Don't you know Jesus went ahead of us and paid the debt that we could never pay? And in response to that, every single time we have an opportunity to make somebody's life easier, especially somebody that's in need, we do that very thing in light of what Jesus has done for us. We shine the light of Jesus into the world, Philippians 2, 15 and 16, and support the needy, yes, among our own, but wherever we find individuals in need. Who are the needy? Obviously, this text in First Timothy five says it's widows, but it wouldn't be just them. It would be the shut ins. It would be those that are physically feeble and that find themselves in nursing homes. It would be those that are single parents and those that are struggling. And our response to them, whoever they are, wherever they are, is to relieve their burdens and help them. It's God's rules. It's what God expects us to do. Here's number three in First Timothy chapter five. We're to have strong relationships within. We're to support the needy. But here's the third thing Paul says. Paul says, I want you to serve so that you might silence your opponents. That's verses eight down through verse 16. Now, Paul's just argued strongly that Christians are to be benevolent toward those that are in need. But in verses eight down through verse 16, Paul's going to say we do not want to enable those that are capable of doing work themselves. Notice what he says in verses eight down through verse 16. He says if anybody does not provide for his own, especially for those that are in his own household, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. That is, if a need arises among our family, the first line of defense, first Timothy five and notice in verse four, it's an individual's children and grandchildren. It's their responsibility. He says, don't let the younger widows get involved in this benevolent work. If they're young widows, they need to remarry so that they can guide the house and support themselves. First Timothy 5, 14 through 15. Now, we might read these passages and wonder to ourselves, how at all is any of this applicable to us today? Is there any contemporary application in these verses about how we're supposed to serve in order to silence the opposition? But I just want you to notice why Paul says we do this. There are at least two reasons why this is important. The first reason is this. We are to never take advantage of church benevolence. We're to never exploit the people of God. You remember Jacob and Esau, they get into a rift because Jacob hustles Esau out of the birthright and then out of the blessing. Some decades pass and these two brothers are about to meet again for a reunion. And as they're on their way to meet, Jacob sends all of these material goods and all of these benefits Esau's way. But notice what Esau says in Genesis 33 and verse nine. He says, keep what you have, brother. I have enough. 
And, you know, that's our responsibility. We're to leave that which we already have for other individuals who may not have. But here's the second thing. It's important that we serve to silence the opposition, because as we work out and live out our domestic responsibilities on a daily basis, it's in that way that we shine the light of Jesus Christ into a watching world. Notice who's watching. Notice First Timothy, chapter five. Paul talks about an adversary that might want to speak reproachfully. That's an unbeliever. They'll look in on the way that we live our lives or fail to live our lives and they might speak reproachfully. In verse eight, he says, if you don't provide for your own. You've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. Why do we go to work and clock in every day, day in and day out? Because if we don't, we'll deny the faith. In verse 15 and verse 16, he says your adversary. That's talking about the devil. He would love to slander you. How do you silence the devil? By doing what you should and living the way that God would have you to. These are God's house rules. This is what God wants for us. You know, true at Kathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, you go to Chick-fil-A, you won't go today because they're closed. And I already told you we're feeding you. So don't go. But if you go to Chick-fil-A and you have an interaction and you have a transaction, nobody at Chick-fil-A is ever going to say you're welcome. You know what they're going to say when they hand you the order. What are they going to say? They're going to say my pleasure. And it started according to Truett when he went to a Ritz Carlton and a young man was helping him carry out his bags at the hotel. And he said, thank you. And the young man responded, my pleasure. He took that back to the meetings in Chick-fil-A. And this is what he told his people. I want us to start saying that every time we serve and help somebody else. But here's what we're not going to do. We're never going to write it into the manual. Instead, we're going to write it into the culture. Everybody's just going to say this so that people that come to our establishment might know that it is always our privilege to serve and to go the second mile. Don't you see what Paul's saying in First Timothy, chapter five? It's our privilege to serve. Ours is written down in the text, but it's also embedded into the culture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means we don't stand around and wait to be served. We go out and see who we can serve and whose burdens we can relieve. We serve in order to silence the opposition. Jesus says, whosoever would be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the son of man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 44 and 45. I don't know if you've realized this, but the reality is there are some people that are never going to come into this assembly simply because we invite them. You know, there are some people that are never going to accept our invitation to come to a gospel meeting or respond to an invitation through a door knocking campaign or listen to a sermon that we show them on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. But what Paul's telling Timothy here and what the rest of the New Testament bears out is this. If we live the right way, if we serve like we should serve, we just might silence the opposition that looks out on Christians and says, you know, they're all hypocrites. They're all just going through the motions. We can silence that by living the right way. What does Peter tell wives about their unbelieving husbands in first Peter three and verse one? If any obey not the word, they may without a word be won over by the conduct of their wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. We can silence the opposition by living godly. And then as they continue to look in on how we live our lives. That silence might turn to suspicion when they see this isn't a fluke. This is just how these people live. And then they might ask us first Peter three and verse 15 about the hope that dwells within us. That silence graduates to suspicion and that suspicion may lead to their salvation once they're introduced to our savior. What do the Samaritans say in John chapter four? The woman comes back, as Easton talked about in his Devo on Wednesday night, and she says, come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. John four and verse 42, the people in Samaria say, now we believe not because of what you've said to us, but we've heard and seen ourselves. 
See, God's house rules are strong relationships within. Love one another like siblings and then support the needy in your midst. And every time you get an opportunity, but then make sure that you serve. Do what you can do with what you have so that we might silence the opposition, the devil, the unbelieving world, those that are skeptical about Christianity. This gets right down to where we live. First Pete, first Timothy five and verse eight. Paul says, if you don't provide for your own. You've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. What does that mean? It means we have a responsibility to be financially responsible and support our families so that we don't deny the faith. He talks about widows and making sure that these younger widows marry and that they will guide the house. First Timothy five and verse 14. Women, whatever else they do, whatever other gifts and talents that God gives them to work in the home or outside of the home, the way the home is guided. It has a bearing on an individual's faith. Paul says if it's not done right in Titus two and verse five. Some individuals just might blaspheme. If we don't live like the gospels impacted us, we'll misrepresent our God. Surely you've had parents or grandparents tell you when you were growing up, maybe you went out of town, you were going to somebody's house for Thanksgiving. Did you ever have the talk in the car before you get out? Or maybe you're going to stay tonight at somebody's house. Now, listen, we're going in here. Don't act like you've never eaten before. Right. Don't act like you don't have any home training. Don't you embarrass me. And don't you know what Paul's saying in First Timothy, chapter five, God's sending you out into the world. And God's saying, now act like you've got heavenly training. Don't you go out into the world and embarrass me. You know, I've taught you better than that. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and then the glory will come back to me. But what if we fail? What if we don't do it? The adversary would say, you see, it makes no difference if you serve him or if you serve me because we're all the same. These are God's house rules and it does make a difference. Here's number four. Paul transitions in first Timothy chapter five after he's talked about our relationships collectively, after he's talked about our relationship to the needy. And then he talks about how we need to serve first Timothy five, 17 through 19. He says, I want you to support and honor the elders among you. First Timothy five, 17, he says, honor those elders that are among you, especially those that labor in doctrine and in teaching. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 25 and verse four. Don't muzzle out the ox that treads out the grain. And then he quotes Luke chapter 10 and verse seven, which says the laborer is worthy of his wages. He says, I want you to make sure that you respect those individuals that serve in the capacity of elders of elders, because these are God's house rules. What God wants is his house, his church to function in the right way. We love one another. We support the needy. We do what we can. But then we honor the leaders. We support and we honor those that serve in the capacity of elders. Notice, make sure we hear Paul well. Paul is not saying in first Timothy five, 17 through 19, that elders always get everything right and we will always agree with their decisions. But Paul is saying instead that God always gets everything right and he's already decided how we ought to treat the men that serve in this capacity. Hebrews 13 and verse 17 says, honor those that are over you in the Lord and submit yourselves because they watch for your souls as those that will give an account that they might do with joy and not with grief, because that would be unprofitable for you. Make sure that you submit to and honor the elders that are among you. We might think we're doing pretty good with obeying and being compliant with God's house rules until we get to this one. And then we think, well, sometimes I like what the elders do. And other times I don't really care for what they do. God's saying, I want you to submit and obey in view of what I told you, regardless of what you think. First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, Paul says, know those who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And I want you to esteem them very highly in love for the sake of their work. Do whatever you can to hold up the hands of the eldership and support them because they're the individuals that serve as stewards in the household of God and local congregations for the good and glory of God. It's what Paul says we should do. 
This idea of double honor in first Timothy chapter five and verse 17 is probably talking about first the elders honor that they're just due for being elders. And that double honor is probably about the monetary compensation, a paid elder who may give himself over, especially to teaching. But I want you to appreciate regardless of single honor or double honor, Paul says they're just to receive honor. Don't even receive an accusation in verse 19 against an elder unless you have two or three witnesses. But remember, the two or three witnesses can never be me, myself and I. Well, I just don't like what they've done. I've got two or three witnesses. Paul says, I want you to submit. I want you to honor them. You read throughout the Old Testament and you see how it worked out for people who despise God's leaders and his authority. Miriam said, Moses, you think God only speaks by you. You're not the only one that's in charge. Numbers chapter 12. God says you'll have leprosy for a week and you'll be put out of the camp. Korah, Dathan and Abiram in number 16, they rose up and they said, Aaron, you're not the only priest in Israel. We all could serve. You're not special. The ground opened up. Fire came down from heaven. Two hundred and fifty people lost their lives because God's house rules. And they said, well, we can do whatever we want whenever we want. We are in violation of this house rule. If we don't submit to those that are over us, how do we fulfill this one? How do we do this? Here's how we can do it. Number one. We get behind congregational efforts as if it were our very own idea. When the elders put something out, we don't just say, well, we're going to see how this goes. I don't think it'll be successful. We get behind it with all of our energy as if it was our idea from the beginning. First Corinthians 15, 58. We're steadfast, unmoved, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We obey this house rule when we say to ourselves their age reflects their wisdom and we don't automatically assume because of their age that they're automatically out of touch with society and with current cultural trends. We submit to this house rule by not questioning their qualifications whenever they make a decision that disagrees with something we already like. You remember what they told Moses in Exodus 2 and verse 14? Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Well, if our elders have been appointed according to divine qualifications, God's put them over us. We obey this house rule when we, no matter how we feel, uphold their hands and come alongside them in service. And we refuse to talk about them in a negative way behind their back to anybody else. Titus three and verse two, speak evil of no one. Paul says, Timothy, you're the preacher there, but there are elders there that are over you. And I want you to make sure that you submit to them. Chuck alluded to this in his prayer. But in Exodus 17, you remember Joshua and the people were at the foot of the mountain and they're fighting the people of Amalek. And as long as her and Aaron hold up Moses's hands, Exodus 17, 11 through 12, the people of Israel are successful in battle. But as Moses's hands begin to droop, so does the chances of Israel being successful in battle. When Moses prevailed, all of the people prevailed, Exodus 17, 13. And I'm just telling you, a local congregation prevails to the extent that the elders do and to the extent that we hold up their hands and work alongside them. Somebody says you want better elders, pray for the ones you have. If you want things to improve, do what you can to ensure that they do improve and hold up their hands. We should come alongside Jim and David, Kevin, Russell and John and leave no doubt that we work alongside them. We work with them and we think the best of them. We expect their success. Paul says, make sure you have two or three witnesses before you receive an accusation, because you're always supposed to assume the best of those in leadership, not their downfall. This is how God set it up. Jesus is our chief shepherd, first Peter, chapter five, one through four. But in his physical absence, he's placed qualified men to serve in this position and we should submit and hold up their hands. We should support and honor the elders in such a way that our sons and grandsons might one day desire the office. 
1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, Paul says, if any man desires the office of an elder, he desires a good work. Why do so many men say about the eldership, oh, I don't think I'd ever do that. Oh, that's a pretty rough and terrible job. Maybe it's a reflection on how we've responded to those who've occupied the office. These are God's house rules. It's his house. And the fourth thing he says is support and honor the elders. Now, here's the fifth and final thing from 1 Timothy chapter 5. And that is we are to seriously deal with sin in our midst, seriously address sin within. First Timothy, chapter five, verse 20 down through verse 25. He's talking in this context, especially about those who serve as elders. He says those that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. And then in verse 21, he says, I want you to do this without any judging before the elders, before the angels and before Christ Jesus. Lay hands suddenly in verse 22 on no man, neither be a partaker of any man's sins. Keep yourself yourself pure. After some medical advice in verse 23 and verse 24 and 25, he tells Timothy everything done in the dark, whether good or bad, ultimately will come to the light. Don't you see what Paul's done? In 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, he says, you're a family, strong relationships. Then in verses 3 through 7, he says, make sure that you remember that there are needy individuals among you, and I want you to support them, verses 3 through 7. Verse 8 down through verse 16, do what you can and make sure that you uphold the leader's hands in verses 17 through 19. But then he ends by talking about something extremely sobering, and that is we're to make sure that we take sin seriously within the camp in our own midst. That means that the sins that ought to aggravate the church the most are the sins that take place among those that claim to be Christians. I'm not telling you that we don't say anything about the sins that happen in the world. We do. We reason about righteousness, temperance and judgment to come. But we always expect the world to act like the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, if I wanted you to leave the world, if I wanted you to get away from all lying, adultery, lust and criminality, you'd have to get out of the world. But Paul says, I'm talking about anybody who claims to be a brother and does these things. Now, that person is under the wrath of almighty God. What does that mean? It means the sin that we take seriously among elders that may sin publicly or members of the church that refuse to repent is ultimately the sin that we should take the most seriously. It's within our own group. It's within our own midst. You know, sometimes somebody says about the church, you know, the church is not a museum for the saints. The church is a hospital for sinners. And that's right. The church is not made up of people that are perfect, but of people that have been pardoned. Ephesians one and verse seven. We've been forgiven of all our sins, but we should keep in mind that the church is also not a museum for sinners. It's not where we just gloat in our sinful scars and our shortcomings. Paul says, make sure that you take sin seriously. You don't celebrate it, but instead you correct it. Some men's sins are done privately, but then they make their way out. And the same thing is true for some men's good deeds. But one of God's house rules is that those that live in his house take sin seriously. And we discipline our own when individuals refuse to repent and live inconsistently with what we claim to believe. There was a study done by some individuals in Britain recently, and they said it is not healthy for you to be a person who always apologizes and says sorry. They said it'll weaken your own self-esteem. People will think less of you and it'll be just downright irritating for everybody in your midst. They said, don't apologize. I want you to see what Paul's saying about sin as he closes out this chapter. It's not that I'm sorry is going to make you worse, but it's that actually repenting and changing is what makes us better based on godly sorrow. Second Corinthians seven and verse 10, godly sorrow leads to repentance that doesn't need to be regretted. This is God's house in first Timothy, chapter five. And these are God's rules. Every house operates on rules, whether written, spoken or simply implied. And what we have in First Timothy five is the way that God wants you and me to live based on what he's given us in divine revelation. And Paul says, remember your siblings, remember the needy among you. Do what you can with your hands. Hold up the hands of your leaders 
and rid sin in the local congregation and always make sure that you start with your own heart. And maybe this morning somebody wants to enter God's house. God has rules for that, too. A person has to believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And if you believe that and you're ready to turn from sin and be immersed in water, you'll rise to walk in newness of life. You'll join us around the table. You'll be God's child. You'll be in God's family. And then you'll be accountable to God's rules. Maybe you've already done that and you realize, you know what, I'm out of duty. God's like a parent that's gone out of town and has left us a long list of chores and responsibilities. He wants to find us in line when he returns. But if he doesn't, if we have not complied, the consequences will be harsh and they'll be severe. Jesus's blood was shed to save us the first time, but it's also shed to continue to cleanse us as we walk in the light. If we're out of duty with the house rules, you're among siblings. We'd be happy to pray with you and pray for you if we can help you. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.